Late 19th century historian William Redaway wrote that there is abundant evidence that King Christian VII of Denmark and Norway impressed contemporaries as highly talented, and not a little that he showed ambition to use his talents well. So how was it that this young king of such promise found himself in the middle of a love triangle that threatened to tear apart his country? And how far does the apple really fall from the tree? I'm Stephanie Bannon. And I'm Riley Cadenacci. And this is Uneasy Lies the Crown. stranger hey stranger it's been a minute it has been a minute could you hear um in our intro a little rustling to the side i sure could could. yeah that was um me and my um lemon up girl scout cookies i know it's not a popular one one. it's like a shortbread lemon but i highly recommend it oh it's so refreshing it cleanses the palate i don't know about that I also don't know about that packaging and why there's like three Girl Scout cookies that come in that packaging instead of in the box. I would agree with that because there's no way to close it. So it's like you have to keep it open or finish it all now. Also, it's loud. Yes, as we just heard. heard, Yes. I also have um, the other classics next to me, the Samoas. Beautiful. the Tagalongs. Not Frozen. Because I refuse. My boyfriend freezes all of our desserts and it ticks me off. Wait, have you tried them frozen though? Because has, but like everything we have is frozen. Okay, because I had never frozen the Girl Scout cookies. My husband is a Thin Mints girly and I don't want any piece of that. But I thought maybe I'll freeze my tagalongs like he freezes the Thin Mints and life changing. And then Actually, yesterday I was in a coffee shop and in between being shocked at this old man who was ordering an old fashioned at 9:45 a.m. um the old ladies who were there to have their coffee in the morning and chat were debating like whether people. yeah like normal people they were debating whether freezing their girl scout cookies hindered them from binging on them or rather just promoted them eating their girl scout cookies and i wanted to say nancy sue you made it this far eat them girl nancy sue wow (laughs) how i watched home alabama recently so okay yeah uh well i i have actually frozen the samoas before and those are good so i'm not against it it's just like i would like some room temperature desserts also now you i heard got your hands on the new exclusive flavor Adventurefuls. Although I was informed that they're not new, they're actually two years old. So okay. new to me. It's new. It's new to a generation of people. So could you describe them for those who also have not had the experience and maybe give your honest review? Um, I'll start with the review. Love them. I think they're a great addition. Very wow. happy. Very pleased. Um, I guess they're supposed to be like a brownie caramel type of thing but it's but it's not a chewy caramel because I don't like that I don't like when it's tough and it Mm -hmm. gets stuck in your teeth and it doesn't so that's and and it's a crisp brownie-ish cookie okay 
Um, so it's not overwhelming. And I, I definitely think that I would recommend it putting in your mix. Okay. That and next year, I got to remember those dosidos. What was I thinking? That, that, yeah, that was not my pick either because I just find them to be a little bit dry with just peanut butter. And yeah. but again, can't go wrong. The only ones and I'm a firm believer that I, I would not indulge in is the Thin Mints because I don't need gum in my. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm with you on the Thin Mint, but I'm also, I don't know if I'm a believer in the lemon. Well, do you like lemon? You like no. lemon? No. Well, I don't like lemon baked goods. Here's my problem. First of all, I was exposed to Nancy Drew at a young age. Love her. Love the books. She, her housekeeper, Hannah, always made lemon squares. And I wanted to be Nancy Drew so bad. Uh-huh. And I uh-huh. often tried to make myself like lemon squares. And it never happened. And I think that if I had liked Lemon Squares, I would be the world's most famous girl detective. Okay, so you have a vendetta against all lemons, all lemon desserts and baked goods because you didn't like a Lemon Square as an adolescent. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. And that's what's holding me back. I think that... I think you'd be pleasantly surprised by these again, because it's just a hint of lemon. It's not overpowering, but, and I like to have them in the middle of the other ones because it breaks it up. <laughs> but anyway, that's not talking about. We are me. really in 2024. Yeah. I've never thought through my cookie selection at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but for real, it's been a, it's been a minute. Mm-hmm. That's because one of us has been very busy preparing for uh, a little baby and that person is me yeah I was gonna say and I have been wanting to do it (laughs) yeah me uh planning a baby shower sending gifts I mean have not had time to really think about anything else um and you know in a couple weeks maybe or a week what's the countdown 10 days 10 days in 10 days we will have um a little uneasy lies the crown baby which are very lie easy yes lie easy come out easy just yeah easy sleep, sleep away little baby. so well it's fair to say this may be the last podcast for a little while because yeah, not forever because you're gonna be a new mom and you know i'm not gonna be one of those co host podcasters that you know says hey sorry you just had a baby a week ago but it's time to podcast again and and what would this be if we let you podcast on your own i would actually oh i shudder to think i I shudder to think a lot more singing probably no one wants Mm -hmm. that um it'll be too funny obviously (laughs) so it's just me so and no one wants that uh, but yeah but I think in the spirit of kind of a send-off in a late valentine's episode Ooh. we have maybe our spiciest episode yet yeah mom turn it off turn it off moms right now well not mom, moms because that's all of our demographic just our mom in our particular mom. Yeah. although she has been reading what she calls smutty books Oh, no. um, so this is probably nothing to her now. Can you please clarify what constitutes yeah, Colleen Hoover? Her? Okay, Colleen Hoover. 
you know, all you moms out there, you know what I'm talking about. I see you every day at the gym, at the bookstore, walking around with your book. And I know what you're reading because I've read it. <laughs> did good you, for you give that to mom? I know our sister-in-law did. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I would have never. But now she started on the path and she can't stop. All right. Well, I have got to get her something a little more wholesome. Yeah. I can't have her on an airplane reading that out in the open. It's embarrassing. Agreed. Agreed. So this is our Uneasy Lies, The Crown After Dark episode. For mature <laughs> audiences only. Viewer discretion advised. No, for real. We are going to be talking about some sexy topics. Um, yes. In the most prudish way possible because i'll be talking about it yeah we're gonna be tasteful it's gonna be tasteful yet historicized freaks yeah we have to give you the facts and the facts in this case in the story are you know a little bit scandalous we're actually putting the stand alice in scandinavia move aside scandaval oh this is scandinavia thank you See, if I had been doing this on my own, I wouldn't have thought of that. So, yeah, there you go. But no, today we are, we're headed back to Scandinavia, to that region. It's a familiar territory. If you listen to one of our recent podcasts on Sweden and how the Swedish royal family is connected to the Nobel Prize. Um, If you didn't catch that one, go back. It's a good one. Um, So we are going to uh, Denmark slash Norway. Uh, talking about Christian the seventh and um, we're in a familiar time period as well. We are um, in the latter half of the 18th century. King George the third is the King of Great Britain. Always comes, back to him. Always comes back. And also Maria is the princess of Portugal, future wow. queen of Portugal. We've also done a podcast with her as well. So, Again, we're in a familiar time period here. A lot it's all contemporaries with some issues going on at this time. Something's yes. in the water. Definitely not has does not have anything to do with inbreeding. Um, <laughs> but so I just want to quickly cl- clarify because I said Christian the seventh of Denmark and Norway. So today, Denmark and Norway, they're two separate countries, of course, but from 1523 to 1814, they're actually joined together under the same crown. They were nicknamed the Twin Realms. So it was a small kingdom in terms of size at the time, but it was a valuable ally because of its location and it had access to the Baltic Sea trade routes. Um, So countries like Russia uh, saw it as very valuable. So that's where we're at today. Christian VII is going to be our guy. Um, And we'll jump right in unless you have... Any objections or anything else you want to talk no, about? No, I'm on the edge of my seat. Okay, great. We have a lot of good content, so you stop me when you want to dive into your sexy talk. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. I know you're, you're ready to go, so I don't want to hold you <laughs> back, you know. Oh, um, goodness. Okay, so let's start a little bit of background with Christian. Um his father, Frederick V, was the king at the time that he was born. And Frederick was the king for, from 1746 to 1766. So he had a good, good size rule there. Uh, rule there. He was married uh, first to a woman named Louise. She was the daughter 
of King George II. So this is King George III's predecessor. So he marries an English princess, basically, is what you need to know. Um, and together they have five children. So um, Christian, he's the oldest. He's the heir. Uh, when Christian was two years old, unfortunately, his father dies. And then, um, his, excuse me, his mother dies, Louise. And then his father remarries. And he remarries a woman named Juliana. And then together they have one child together. They have a boy also named Frederick because, you know, we can't have children of different names here on the podcast. That would be too easy. Uh, for those of you joining us on camera, um, you might see the dogs in the background because I had to let them in. So you'll get an extra special treat on video. It feels like you're right in the room with us. Yes, it this does. Experience especially, is about. especially because the second dog um, is a cousin dog and she likes to whine. So sorry in advance. But I, anyway, my baby. Women, you know. Mm -hmm. So. <laughs> so anyway, back to the story that I was in the middle of. So. Um, so, yeah. So now Christian has a half brother named Frederick. And just keep that in the back of your mind for later on that his stepmother and half-brother are going to play an important role. Um, I also just want to mention that in addition to the six children from his two marriages that Frederick V had, he also had an additional five children from his mistresses. So that's just giving you a little example of what our boy Frederick was up to and what his son Christian saw growing up. So did, did Christian have any contact with the children of the mistresses? Were they like part of the family? Not that I know or... of. Okay. Not that I know of. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure he was well aware of them, obviously, yeah. and his father's reputation. It wasn't a secret at all. Um, nice. So when Frederick dies, Christian becomes king. Christian's 17 years old at the time. Um, and what's interesting about Denmark and Norway is that um, at this time, they're an absolute monarchy. So today, you probably know, let's take England, for example, or most monarchies are not uh, absolute monarchies. They don't really have any power. Mm -hmm. He fundamentally disagrees with that statement. He said, screw that. I believe in the power of the British monarchy. Okay, so you may know from England, for example, the monarchy doesn't have any actual power. Right. Um, but at this time in Denmark and Norway, the king actually did have all the power. So he could do whatever he wanted. Um, so it's a, it's a massive amount of power for a 17-year-old boy to inherit, um, especially all at once. So the good news is that Christian did show some great potential at first, but there were a lot of people that were worried that Christian may have learned some bad habits from his father. So we know that he was a womanizer, but he was also an alcoholic. So <laughs> good combo. It's a good combo. Great combo. Um, but not that uncommon for a king. Let's just be clear. Um, it's not like Frederick was the only womanizing alcoholic king in Europe. 
That's what gets me about it's like, was this not a hard job? Like you have all the power in the country, but you have time to carry on with multiple women and drink your days away. Well, I can only speculate, but I sorry, you can hear the squeaky. <laughs> I can only speculate that a lot of these kings didn't really actually do like they appointed people to do their job for you, which we'll talk about, which is important to know because um We'll, we'll talk about like what Christian actually did or maybe what people think he did versus what he may have done in terms of like actually holding power. Um, Makes sense. So the people around Christian, they decide to marry him off young for political reasons, of course, but also because they thought like, hey, what is going to keep him on the straight and narrow? Let's get him married because we all know that a woman that no married man has ever abused alcohol or been unfaithful. So unprecedented, unprecedented. So it seems like a great idea to me. Christian ends up marrying King George III's sister. So we're going back to England. He's marrying a, um, also an English princess, Caroline Matilda. Okay. So that creates an important alliance between England and Denmark and Norway. And then of course they have a son, not, of course, they have a son because that's not always a given, but they have a son. And of course, they name him Frederick. <laughs> We're going to call him Freddie. Okay. And we'll talk about him later. Okay. So let's talk about kind of Christian and his mentality and his behavior. Why are we here today? There's some discrepancy amongst historians and peers of the time about when Christian's behavior started shifting and becoming concerning. There are some say that it was before his marriage, since he was a young boy. Some say that it was after, but they do all agree on a pivotal event, which was in 1768. Christian was touring Germany. He becomes very ill. Um, and a doctor named Johann Friedrich, Friedrich, and I'm going to say this wrong, and you took German, and he is German, so maybe you can help me. Strunze? Strunze? How's Strunze? I, I don't know. S-T-R-U-E-N-S-E-E. -E. Sounds good, Strunze. Strunze? Let's call him Strunze. Um, he's someone to take care of. Strunze. I like Ooh. it. Mm. Um, he's so successful in nursing him back to health that he's hired as a personal physician. Um, so he's with Christian, uh, interestingly enough, and you may talk about this, um, the doctor, he had spent a lot of time working with mentally ill patients. So he had some pretty progressive ideas about how the brain worked and just progressive ideas in general, which we will also talk about. Um, so while he's caring for Christian, Johan notes the following observations and concerns, peculiarity in his mind and character great guardedness and contempt of all those who were around him, unhappiness with being king, and at times a disbelief that he was actually legitimately the king, easily angered if contradicted, he would physically hurt himself, he would break out into fits of violence, he had a tendency to live in a fantasy world, he was paranoid that he was going to be assassinated, he would break into inappropriate and random laughter, excessive partying, and then he had a, quote, bad habit that one could guess without naming it. 
Now, many no. people on this podcast are going to say, no, Stephanie, I can't actually guess the habit without naming it. So I need you to name it. And if our mom is listening, she could probably name it because she's been reading a lot of smutty books because <laughs> oh my God. I'm just going to say it and I'm going to be an adult about it. The habit that he had was masturbation. Okay. Okay. Apparently he did it so much that his peers thought it was the reason for his mental decline. Was it something that he would do, but like in front of people? I don't know. I think it's just the fact that he did it all the time. But when right. you're a king, you're always in front of someone. Meaning okay. like that's the rules of privacy aren't the same. Ooh, like there's right. always someone in your chambers. There's always servants. There's always like close friends are always there. So okay. it doesn't sound like he had... Uh, he wasn't shy with it. He wasn't going around like the court waving it around. Sure. Um, sure. But yes, Good. apparently they called it master masturbatic insanity. Yes. I will touch on this. Yes. You're going to touch. Mm -hmm. Well, oh. <laughs> all right. I will speak on this matter. You will speak on the matter. Great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so anyway, there you go. We have an official diagnosis for why men act the way they do. You're welcome. Um, but <laughs> uh, Dr. Strunzi did write that there were many periods where Christian appeared to be stable and competent, and he was able to perform his job as king. Um, but as Christian declines, the doctor seems to have been taking advantage of that decline and his um improved status so the doctor is named um privy cabinet minister in 1771 that's a very influential position in the king's inner circle the people around the king are not happy uh, they don't like that there's this foreigner who um you know doesn't come from what they think is probably a respectable background and he seems to have a lot of influence on the king. And they also don't like his um, his kind of rumored beliefs. So what I'll say is this is the time of the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. um, so the Enlightenment movement is raging across Europe. It's a time of free thinkers. People like Voltaire are challenging the system, the way that the... Um, that the monarchy's people are treated and the rights that they have or don't have the church's role in people's life. So all of these things are being um, questioned. And if you're a part of the aristocracy or the nobility, you don't want that to happen because all of your money and success and privilege is built on the backs of those people that don't have any rights. So Voltaire hair hair voltaire hair yeah. personally i'd love to hear about voltaire and if you know where that quote comes from then you're a real one yeah if not then you probably don't listen to this anyway so i don't really care. yes exactly so it wasn't for you um <laughs> but yes so strunzi was thought or at the time thought, now it's known to be an Enlightenment thinker, to have these kind of radical ideas. Um, and so it, it started, 
people started to think that he was using his power and influence over the king to get Christian to make decisions and to sign legislation and decrees. Um, it needed the king's signature. But what we don't know is how much how much influence the doctor had and what was mm -hmm. really coming from Christian. Because again, there's these, there's this debate about his mental faculties and, um, you know, what he was capable of doing. So, um, the queen, Caroline and Strinzi, the doctor, they're trying to keep Christian's condition a secret. Um, they want to protect the reputation of the crowd. Um, but, uh, they do something or, it's suggested or they're accused of doing something that doesn't really help the reputation. Um, so Caroline gives birth to a daughter in 1771, Princess Louise Augusta, which is a great occasion for happiness, except that um, the history books and the people at the time are pretty aligned that Caroline and Strinzi were having an affair. No. And that Louise was actually the doctor's child. She's a all. She's a strudel. Um, so that, and one of the reasons why people think that is because Christian himself doesn't really acknowledge his daughter at the time of her birth. So the doctor wasn't popular before. He's definitely not popular now. Neither Again, is the queen. The doctors in this era that are you can't catch a breeding royals are just not yeah. quality. Not quality. No, not quality. There was no vetting so, process. Right. And now we'll bring in um, Christian's stepmom, Juliana, and his half-brother, Frederick, because they obviously hate Strunzi. They hate the doctor. Juliana has high ambitions for her son being the king or having some type of influence. And uh, the doctor and the queen, they're all getting in the way. So I'm going to pause and just tell you a little bit. And then if you want to if you want to take it away. Um, yeah. I did watch a movie uh, this week. It's called A Royal Affair. It is about basically this love triangle. And it uh, it's in Danish. At least the version I saw was in Danish. So I watched it with <laughs> subtitles, which was fun. I mean, I think it's supposed to be in Danish. It's weird because... Yeah, why would it not... Well, because on your version... Well, I, I watched it on Peacock and the commercial or like the preview was in English and like the titles in English, everything's in English. But when you watch it, it's actually wow. in Danish. Like it was made that way. It's not like it's voiceovers. Huh. So, but it was fine. It has uh, Alicia Vikander, who I, who I enjoy. And it has one of the scars guards, one of the many scars guards. They're always in the mix. Um, yeah. So it's actually, it's. Obviously, it's a movie, so there's always dramatic interpretations of things for the sake of a movie. It's not the most inaccurate movie I've ever seen. It it does touch on basically all of the the things that we talked about. Um, you know, the one question I had is that it it really pushes Christians like this theory that he was mentally ill. And he, from the beginning, like when uh, Caroline met him, he was clearly already mm. mentally ill. So the movie really stresses that, but that's up for debate. But anyway, I highly recommend it. Very good movie. It um, really does. I mean, it's the perfect plot of a movie when you were talking about it. I, you, you can't make this stuff up. 
oh no you can't and that's why we love history because we didn't make any of this up no. and the, the rise of the movie didn't have to make anything up because yeah. it was all there intrigue adultery you know masturbation which the movie <laughs> doesn't really talk about that which is nice that's good um, I don't need that really yeah but um and then we'll talk about you know how it ends which is not great for certain people but makes a great movie so yes yeah, so let's let's talk some science um let's keep it professional people as we dive into neurobiology of sex as you will um so as you mentioned steph people especially uh his doctor thought that christian's masturbation and the frequency of it was driving all of these other psychiatric symptoms um modern medicine would have the opposite view that right. he probably suffered from bipolar disorder if we look at all the symptoms we've touched on this before in previous episodes but just to recap um, bipolar has these periods of mania followed by periods of um, depression um, and because Christian has been described as having these periods of clarity, it would be consistent with this kind of cyclical mm -hmm. disease. Um, he had a lot of symptoms too, according to the doctor's notes, that would be consistent with episodes of mania. So first mm -hmm. of all, delusions. So uh, Christian lived in this fantasy world. He didn't believe he was king. He also had paranoia. He didn't trust people around him. He thought he would be assassinated. That's another hallmark. Um, and then he was poor with decision-making. And I think you mentioned also that he really saw himself as better than the people around him. Uh, with the, an inflated sense of self is right. another symptom of mania. So what's interesting not is that he... Sorry, not to interrupt yeah. you, but... Also, not to be confused with like just the fact that these were royals, and so they've been raised right that they are better than everyone. It's almost like I am untouchable, like yes. I am not human. Correct. I, yeah. Yeah. See Caligula for more mm -hmm. examples. Yeah. Um, but yeah, since the 1970s, it's actually been known that manic episodes during bipolar are associated with. Um, what's been described as hypersexuality, and we'll we'll break that down. Um, basically, this is the definition of hypersexuality is controversial. Obviously, there's different norms of mm -hmm. sexual behavior depending on the society and the time. Um, but usually what's meant by hypersexuality is um, increased sex drive. And the research especially looks at uh, a risk of or risky sexual behaviors during episodes of mania. So um, people with bipolar disorder during a manic episode are more likely to engage in prostitution, be the victims of sexual violence, have extramarital affairs, or be exposed to um, sexually transmitted diseases. So um, definitely there's some relationship between uh, sexual behavior and bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. However, the actual connection is not super clear. So what I want to do is just give everyone an appreciation of how the brain is involved in sexual behavior under normal circumstances, and then how that might mm -hmm. give us some clues as to what is going awry um, in, in not just bipolar disorder, but some other mental illnesses as well. So, I mean... 
at least our American listeners, your sex ed classes in school failed you. Uh, your American Pismal. Girl Guide to the Care and Keeping of You failed you. It's bad. Um, and what you probably never learned is how involved your brain and central nervous system are in all stages, all levels of sexual function. Um, this is a huge topic. I'm just going to give some examples. And I specifically want to shout out one of my professors from undergrad, Dr. Jade Z who taught a behavioral endocrinology class at Northeastern University. Um, and this is where I'm pulling a lot of the literature from, and it's super fascinating. So we'll start with the ladies. Uh, we talked about hormones and their effect on the brain and vice versa in our episode on Alexandra Romanov. So check that out if you want more info. But um, in women, our hormones fluctuate across the menstrual cycle. And this causes changes in physiology and mood, um, but they also change a woman's receptiveness and interested interest in um, sex. So what's really cool is that the body and the brain are kind of colluding almost so that a woman is most interested in sex at ovulation when she's mm -hmm. most fertile. And this is due to the effects of estrogen on the brain. Um, Yes. The other hormone that you may have heard of is called oxytocin, which is released in the brain during sex and it facilitates pair bonding between partners. So creating this like deep emotional connection, but it's also thought to trigger um, reward pathways, which we'll talk about more in a bit. And it can also have effects on the uterus um, to contract, to promote fertilization. One particular model that I think is nice of understanding how the brain and body work together during sex in females um, is specifically in mice. So this doesn't apply to humans, but I think it's a really cool example. So there's this behavior in mice and females when they're mating. Um, they arch their back in a certain way when they're receptive to a potential suitor. Mm -hmm. um, and this position is called lordosis, facilitates mating. Um, and it's dependent on both sex hormones and neurotransmitters, those chemicals that um, communicate between cells in the brain. So basically, a sexual stimulus would trigger the release of estrogen in your central nervous system. Estrogen would elicit um, excitatory transmitters, neurotransmitters in the brain, and they increase uh, activity neuronal activity in an area of the brain called the hypothalamus. Ah, and, yep. Hypothalamus. Yes. If you don't get hypothalamic activity, then you don't get lordosis because the hypothalamus then signals to the spinal cord and it's this reflex that the mouse gets into position. So you need a combination of hormones, brain, body, to unite in order to get successful mating in the females. So those are some examples there. Um, and then if we talk about the males briefly, um, I think we're a little bit more familiar that testosterone drives a lot of sexual behavior. Um, well, unfortunately. We, uh, we both have male dogs that have been neutered and- um, Doesn't matter. Know, well, it should. It should. Uh, <laughs> it should. In theory, um, 
in rodents, if you castrate and then replace testosterone, you can restore uh, sexual behavior and desire. Hmm. So um, kind of testosterone is acting both on the brain and on the genitalia. So at the penis, mom, relax. The testosterone is broken down into a byproduct that can control sensitivity and reflexes to stimulation. And then actually in the brain, testosterone gets converted to estrogen. So everyone thinks of estrogen as this female hormone, but um, testosterone exerts its effects in the male brain as estrogen. So depending on which brain region it acts on, it can affect uh, sex drive, uh, the integration of different sensations, and then the motor behavior. Uh, one good example of this is actually that after becoming a father and like spending time with your child, your testosterone levels plummet. Oh, um, get ready. And, yeah, get ready. <laughs> uh, and this is supposed to evolutionarily like make sure that the male is there to support the family and also is thought of as like a little break to like, let's not make another baby right now. Whereas like the woman would have the pain of childbirth as the disincentive for having another baby right away. So okay. it out. Um, and then neurotransmitters are also participating in male sexual behavior. So there's uh, a gas called nitrous oxide that can be produced either in the brain or at nerves in the genitalia. And it basically initiates a signaling cascade that allows blood to flow in to the penis for an erection. Um, mm -hmm. And this was actually discovered because Viagra um, worked. And then they looked back and said, what is it doing? A miracle. And they figured out how that's happening. Um, all this is not supposed to be for that when they first use it. I don't think so. Ah, what a fun yeah. side effect. Yeah, you know, it worked out for them commercially. Yes. Um, so all of this is to say that the brain is needed at all levels of sexual behavior. Believe it or not. <laughs> Believe it or not. Believe it or not. Conscious or not. So... We know now that hormones and neurotransmitters are involved through a complex network of interactions. And then we have bipolar disorder that we've talked about before, which um, is characterized by changes in neural cell communication. And how exactly do these two work together to drive the changes in sexual behavior seen during mania? Um, it could be a lot of different things. It could be that uh, sexual stimuli have different potency for patients with bipolar. It could be that their sex drive is increased. There's certainly some, some literature suggesting that. But um, what seems to be emerging from modern literature is that the reward system is often to blame. So changes in how the brain experiences the quote reward of sex. Mm -hmm. And this is where we'll bring in another fun topic of pornography. Oh, yes. very spicy. Very spicy indeed. So I am not advocating that the doctor was correct in his theory of masturbatic insanity. 
but I don't want to neglect the fact that there is emerging research that masturbation habits can affect the brain. Mm -hmm. Um, And porn is more widespread than ever, um, more widely accessible than ever. And despite the fact that there's evidence, right, that uh, consistent porn use and compulsive porn viewership can lead to relationship problems, workplace indiscretions, and mood issues, there is no uh, diagnosis of hypersexuality, of pornography addiction, of any of these things in the DSM-5, which is what the American Mm. Psychological Association uses to Mm -hmm. guide diagnoses of mental disorders in our country. So I was shocked by this. Um, You know, you hear about celebrities who have gone into rehab for sex addiction all the time. Um, It's not technically a mental diagnosis. Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. And I think a lot of that is because there's like implications to labeling someone's sexual behavior. Um, But unfortunately, that leaves a large swath of people who are struggling with sex and porn addictions um, without getting the care that they need because it's not technically a disorder. Right. Um, Pornography has been the center of some neuroscience research recently uh, that is kind of trying to push the point that these things can be as addictive as substances. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think uh, gambling addiction is currently the only diagnosis of a behavioral addiction that's recognized. Um, But hopefully with this research, um, sexual addictions can be recognized as well. So um, the center of all addiction is our reward pathway in our brain, which is called the mesolimbic pathway. It connects an area called the ventral tegmental area with a region of the brain called the striatum. So the ventral tegmental area releases dopamine onto the striatum. This is very simplistic, but uh, when... Oh, yes, very simple. Thank you. Yeah, I'm oversimplifying that when your striatum sees dopamine, you're experiencing a biological reward. So natural things evolutionarily can give you that reward, Um, food, sex, things like that. Um, But objects of addiction essentially hijack this reward pathway so that they are the only thing capable of giving you Mm -hmm. that dopamine hit. Mm -hmm. And then your body becomes desensitized and you need more and more of that thing to experience the biological Mm -hmm. reward. Mm -hmm. Um, and there is evidence that pornography can be, um, can hijack the mesolimbic pathway. So going over a couple of interesting papers, there's one from 2008, which was like an initial case study. And they, um, looked at uh, this group of doctors from the Mayo Clinic looked at a man who was struggling with pornography, masturbation, and infidelity. His marriage was a wreck. His career was a mess. And he didn't respond to treatments for OCD, which Mm -hmm. um, is kind of like what the doctors thought would work. So his psychiatrist did something unorthodox and gave him uh, a prescription for naltrexone, which is used to treat alcoholism. 
it blocks um, receptors on neurons in the ventral tegmental area, so you don't get dopamine release. And the patient reported that he felt, quote, a measurable difference in sexual urges. I wasn't being triggered all the time. It was like paradise. And after three years of consistently using the naltrexone and OCD medication, he basically said, like, I'm faithful to my wife. I occasionally slip up, but it's not the same. So this was super provocative. It's only one person, but it's suggesting that if we target this reward pathway, i.e. what's happening in addiction, we can correct some of these um, hypersexual behaviors. And then in 2014, there was a study in Germany that did MRI imaging of of over 60 men, um, and they found that more hours of pornography consumption per week was associated with a smaller um, size of a portion of the striatum called the caudate nucleus. And then that smaller region also communicated less with the parts of the brain needed for impulse control and decision-making. So that there's a lot of of evidence there. Yeah, there's a lot of evidence there. And then what I think is really cool is that um, men who watched more porn, they showed less brain activation in response to pornographic images. So this is consistent with the idea of desensitization Desensitization. of an alcoholic, meaning more and more alcohol to get their fix. And that's why you see people kind of like escalating their pornography consumption to things that are more and more extreme. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are some limitations to this research. It's possible that, you know, having a smaller caudate nucleus is predisposing these men to pornography addiction rather than the other way around. Um, But all in all, I think it's very telling that sexual behavior can, can hijack our reward system. And um, I honestly just think it's a shame that that is not widely recognized in, in psychology and in psychiatric care. Um, I know that there's a lot of personal concerns about diagnosing this topic, uh, but there are a lot of people that could have been helped by this. um, And I think Christian is just one example of, of someone who struggled with hypersexuality Mm -hmm. um, and would have benefited from someone intervening. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of people that themselves come forward like you said celebrities that have come yeah. forward. this is a this is a problem like, this is more than just like guys being dudes type yep. of thing yeah. like this like, is it is ruining my life it's interfering in me functioning in life and so um and so that's why you know that that is pretty strong case for it to be something other than yes so this. not to say that masturbation will make you crazy no, um, we aren't saying that at all. But uh, definitely with Christian, it was probably a symptom of right. another psychiatric issue he was dealing with. And um, it's something that people still struggle with, especially in our day and age. Right. Yeah. But I, I mean, at the time, like they obviously didn't have that information. And so yeah. um, they, the easiest thing to say was like, oh, he's he's literally driving himself crazy by mm-hmm. well, by doing this um so yeah and and unfortunately for christian and 
the friend that he had made in the doctor and, you know, the rumors with his wife um, and his perceived mental illness all kind of made this into a great segue for uh, his enemies to um, basically overthrow him. So his stepmom, it's believed his stepmom is behind this, but um, in 1772, there was um, a coup and the doctor was arrested and um, Caroline Matilda was also arrested. They were both charged with trying to overthrow the king and obtaining power for themselves. And of course, the crime of adultery. So again, we don't really know how, what the role, what Christian's role was in this arrest um, mm -hmm. because he had to sign for it as king, but did he really understand what was going on? Did he really want the doctor and his wife to be arrested. It's unclear. So the most likely scenario is that Juliana is the one that's conducting this with her son, Frederick, that they're the brains behind this operation. Um, what's interesting is that, you know, Strunzi and Caroline, they have a quote trial um, where they were both found guilty, not surprisingly. Um, but uh, Christian actually attended the trial and he spoke on behalf of Strunzi. And he didn't condemn him. He didn't actually accuse him of any wrongdoing, which kind of put a wrench in the prosecutor's plans. But, um, you know, Strunzi and Caroline, they have, there's uh, writings from their time in prison that survive that are very, um, they're adamant that they did not do anything wrong, um, that they didn't have an affair, that they weren't trying to overthrow the government. So, Again, we'll never really know. We'll never really know. I think that there's some strong evidence that the affair did happen. And I'm sure that because um, Strunzi and Caroline uh, shared these enlightenment ideals, and they did want to do a lot of good things for the country, that they did for a while um, enacting some pretty progressive uh, legislation um, with or through Christian so they did do a lot of good things, um, but obviously it, it caught up to them because the nobility didn't like that. So um, they were able to I ask a question, yeah. though. Why was Juliana and why were Juliana and Frederick pushing Strunzi and Caroline out if Frederick isn't the next in line to the throne? Well, they right they wanted him to be basically i mean she for so juliana wants her son to be king mm -hmm. and to do that she's got to move a couple chess pieces okay so, so this was just step one in her yeah because you can move christian pretty easily because people at this point are convinced that he's mentally ill so um so they move him out of the way they get strunzi out of the way which they, which she knew was, um, you know, influential and, and the queen as well. So um, Strunzi is sentenced to death. He's publicly executed in 1772. Caroline um, was not executed because of her relation to the King of England. That would have caused a lot good. <laughs> of grief. Don't want to do that. So she's basically banished 
Um, she's sent to live in Germany. Their marriage is annulled. And sadly, she dies three years later from scarlet fever. She's only 23. So all of this Wait, is happening. What? Yeah. She, I mean, they were young. I mean, he was 17 when he got married. I think she was 15, maybe. Oh, my goodness. This happened very quickly, and she was very young. So, like, you know, she may not have had the kind of forethought for what was going on. She was young and impressionable. Um, but yeah, so with Strunzi removed from the picture, basically Juliana and her son kind of filled that vacuum of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and they basically rule as kind of a de facto regent um, until Christian's son, Freddie, came of age um, to be um, you know, regent himself for his father. Because remember, Christian's still alive right? this whole time. He's still the king. He is the king for 36 years after this coup. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, whatever was going on mentally, he he sticks it out physically. Um, and so when Christian does eventually pass away and Freddie um, becomes king, he's like had enough of juliana and her son like he at this point at 17 or 18 years old like he gets it he knows what's really going on so he banishes them he he's like i'm done with you um he actually did that even before his father died for for like a good two decades he he got rid of them he was the regent for his father and he was using his power for good so he help support some very um you know positive reform measures for the country for the people um and you know he remains his father's regent until his father dies um and then he becomes the king uh king frederick the sixth so of course there's a bump in the roads but you know freddie you know ended up being a pretty good regent and um a pretty pretty good king as well um and what's impressive is that you know these coups the you know the coup that juliana um kind of set up to kick strunzi out that was a bloodless coup the coup that freddie christian's son had to kind of retake his own crown and regency <laughs> back like it's kind of weird he was like he's the heir but he had to he had to overthrow them you know juliana and and frederick out was also bloodless classy Um, yeah really classy coups here which is not always um it's really say a strategic game a delicate policy play yeah and i and i think historians kind of chalk this up to the fact that um denmark norway is a pretty stable country up until then um, obviously, there was a lot of revolution going on across Europe, um, but they were able to um, kind of remain stable, which was nice. Um, and, you know, that peace lasted for uh, for a while and um, it lasted until the constitutional monarchy was established. So, so the more of the monarchy that we know today or or that came after the the French Revolution. Um, that was in 1850. So there was a lot of instability. Instability, excuse me. Unstability is not a word, people. 
There's a lot of instability um, and a lot of moments where Christian and his inability to kind of rule himself could have thrown the country into disarray, especially with these people really fighting for power. Um, And it didn't. It's a credit to um, Freddie. It's a credit to um, just the kingdom as a whole and kind of the history that they had and the ideals that they had. Um, unfortunately, Freddie died without any male children. He mm-hmm. died in 1839. So the crown goes to the next male who was in line for the throne, which was um, ironically Christian the eighth. And that was the son of um, Juliana's son, Frederick. Why are they just naming each other's children after each other? Yeah. So, so. Okay. So Frederick gets back. Yeah. So, so Juliana in the end, I guess kind of gets what she wanted. So her son, Frederick has a son and that is the next in line after Freddie passes away. Yes. Um, And then don't forget Queen Matilda or Queen Caroline Matilda and Dr. Sunzi had a daughter, Louise, right? right. So um, she ends up marrying pretty well. Oh, I thought you were going to say marrying her cousin. Well, I don't know, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. Um, she has a daughter of her own. Her name is Charlotte. And Charlotte becomes Christian VIII's second wife. So I haven't been able to do the tree here. So they're um, second cousins, I think. Right? They're cousins. They yeah. Easily. easily. Well, Louise Louise, is that her name? Yes. And Christian are first cousins. So the her daughter would be Christian. Well, Louise and Christian Louise and, and Christian the seventh are brother and sister. I'm trying but okay. So we have Christian the eighth. Oh right? not brother and sister. Wait. Okay. We're talking about, yeah, that's Christian the eighth. Yes. That is the son of Frederick Queen, uh, uh, Juliana's Mm -hmm. son. And then we have the, the daughter is Louise. Yes. Okay. If she actually was Christian, the seventh daughter, they would be cousins. Okay. And then Louise's daughter would be, I think that's how that works. Second cousins. Yeah. Yeah. So really the the worst I've seen. No, it's not the closest, but the moral of the story is that they end up all being mixed together anyway. Mm -hmm. So they can't really escape it. Um, But, you know, good for Louise because at the time of her birth and after her mother died, it wasn't really a good situation for her. Um, but it sounds like she bounced back and then she's her, so back. She's so back and her daughter got the throne. It's so, all you can want for your daughter in the end. To marry their second cousin. I agree. <laughs> it's my wish for my daughter. <laughs> it's beautiful. Well, never say never. But yeah, so anyway, um the story of Christian the Seventh, it's sexy. It's got intrigue. It's got adultery. It's a mess. It's a mess. And somehow his son and his daughter, or maybe not his daughter, but his children, 
um, were able to ferry Denmark, Norway into a relatively peaceful future um, in which, you know, they they did absorb a lot of the Enlightenment ideals that had gotten Strunzi and Caroline killed, basically. Everyone won. A everyone rare, won. A rare scenario where everyone is up to no good and yet everyone wins. And we went to Denmark um, last year. And, we did. Um, I, I thought it was a lovely country. I love what Christian the seventh and the eighth did with that place. Yeah. Great work. Great work. I'd go back again. 10 out of 10. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, we're going to miss you. We're going to miss you when I just take this on myself and just go solo from here. Now, so and start making the millions. Yeah, exactly. No, we'll be, we'll be back. Don't worry. Um, there just might be more crying in the background, although I don't know how that would be possible after today's episode. No. Whining, crying, whether it's a dog or a baby. That's or what you can say. Who can say? Who can say? can say. Well, good luck with the yeah. baby. Stay off the smut, and I'll uh, talk to you later. Bye. Uneasy Lies the Crown is researched and recorded by Stephanie Bannon and Riley Bannon. Editing by Thomas Catanacci. Theme music by Jared Cunningham and artwork by Jackson Roy.